Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So good morning. I'm glad again, once again, to be here with you as we continue our series on 1 Corinthians called The Church Next Door. We found through studying this book that this particular church had a ton of problems, but we've learned that we still, in fact, face the same issues, the same type of problems within our church today. You see, remember last week, we started a new section on Paul's thought in this letter about proper Christian worship. In order to understand what we're going to focus on today, I just want to do a quick recap so we can kind of follow his train of thought in this letter. Remember, last week we learned that evidently in their worship gatherings, the lines were being blurred between men and women in in, in some way. And so Paul set the record straight. He went back to the creation accounts and explained that both men and women are created by God. They're equal in value, but there are differences that need to be recognized and maintained. We talked about spiritual headship and the reality that when men and women come together, there should be some some modesty put in place, right? Be aware of that. And again, we can get so caught up with that and think, well, Paul's saying this, Paul's saying that. Listen, his point is when we gather together, we are here to worship God. And we don't want to create environments that cause distraction or bring attention upon yourself. The goal of worship is to worship God. And so we saw last week that in no way was Paul limiting or belittling women. In fact, he empowers them in a great way, but he doesn't want us to blur those gender lines and and pretend that men and women are like the exact same thing. And I want to touch on that real quick because I had a lot of follow-up questions this week, which always happens after a sermon like that, and I always welcome them. But as, as we talk through that, and as I brought up last week, I just want to bring to the forefront that, listen, I recognize there has been tons of wounds created by other churches and other people in these areas, and I feel like I finally have the proper language to explain what we're trying to do as a church, as a community of Jesus followers. You see, first, our mission is to make and mature followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. So we want to be intentional about creating environments where people can grow in their faith. And we believe we need to create environments for women and then environments for men to both learn what it means to follow Jesus. Now, there are some things specific to men in the Bible. There are some things specific to women in the Bible. But overall, the goal is for everybody to have an authentic, vulnerable environment to talk about and explain and work through their faith. And the truth is, there are some things that men can talk about together that they would feel very uncomfortable if other ladies were in the room. And perhaps there's things that women can talk about. I don't know. I'm not one of them. I've never been in those environments. Women want to talk about that they may feel comfortable if men were in the room. So the goal isn't saying like, hey, there's different studies because they're just different things all together. No, no. We're all trying to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, but the environments that we do that in are going to look a little bit differently, and that's what we're going for. And so 
Our goal, never forget this, is to help each and every person grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are just some specific things we need to talk about in groups of the same gender. Like, that's all we're trying to do there. Because remember, this church was trying to blur the line saying, hey, they're the same. Paul's like, no, 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 they're not. And in fact, he says they are different. But to move on to where he's going today, he's saying, but there are some divisions you have in your church that need to be, that you need to get rid of. Here's what's going on. The church was doing the same things they've always done. When the church would gather together for worship back then, they would eat together. It's called a love feast. And so evidently they wouldn't just come to worship. They would come and actually enjoy a meal together. And in this meal, here's what's important to understand. They were just doing what they've always done. They were meeting together how anybody in that culture in that time period would have met together. And I imagine what they were doing seemed so innocent to them in which Paul has plenty to say about it. And I think we need to understand that because as people, right, we can sometimes get so caught up on other people's problems that we look right past our own. Have y'all ever done that before? Jeb's like, no, evidently go to the men's study. He has it all figured out, okay? Everybody else, right. So, I've done this, the first church I pastored at, and I was, felt convicted, I was working through this, the very first church I pastored at had what's called a, a slave balcony, right? The church, uh, when I started pastoring, was 225 years old, okay? So it's much older than that now, but they had a slave balcony with its own entrance and everything. So basically, the slaves were never allowed in the, this area, you know, the, the worship area, they had to go through their own entrance, couldn't interact with anybody else, they had to be separate. And every time I looked at the slave balcony and they talked about the history of the church, it, it bothered me. And it would confuse me. I'd just sit there and go, I can't understand how Christians would participate in things like that. I would be so busy thinking about them, but it never dawned on me, maybe I should consider why our church was 99.9% .9 all white. It was so easy to focus on their issues and never even think about the current stuff we're dealing with. Because here's the problem with culture. We can just assume that the way we're doing it is the right way it's supposed to be done. That everybody before us has already went through that. They were messed up and we, we've finally figured it out. But you see, that's the kind of stuff Paul is calling out here. Paul is calling us, you, me, we, the, the church, to look past cultural normatives to go a little bit deeper and let the gospel affect every aspect of your life. He's calling the church to think about how the gospel needs to transform you, like individually, and not just assume culture and traditions are the right thing. In fact, the gospel, I swear it gets uncomfortable if you've been in church for a while. The gospel calls us to question culture, to question our traditions and practices. Let's listen to Paul as he works through this. That's where we're going. Verse 17, chapter 11. He says this. He says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. Remember last week he said, I can praise you. And it was one sentence. Then he slammed him, right? Now he's just starting off the bat. Here, I just have nothing good to say. Like what you're doing here, I cannot praise you. For it sounds, check this out. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. 
So the assumption is when we gather together as a church for worship or for teaching or whatever that may be, we assume that only good happens because we're gathering for worship. But Paul says, no, no, when you gather for that stuff, actually more harm is being done than good. You're harming people rather than helping people. And this is all about the assembly, the gathering of the people. He says, verse 18, he says, first, I hear that there are divisions, that should be yellow, divisions among you when you meet together as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. Now, if you've been with us through this journey so far, you saw right at the beginning of the letter, Paul told them he didn't want them to be divided. He wanted them to be united in purpose and what they're carrying out. He's worked through that with them. Remember, they were divided over leaders. They were divided over who baptized them. They would name drop like who baptized them to give them more street cred in the church. I don't understand it, but that's what they were doing, right? That's what was going on. Now we have this other division happening. Now he turns and gets a little sarcastic. Stay with him. He says, but of course, but of course there must be division among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Now, generally I've heard this preached that Paul is showing that in the church, sometimes there's disagreements to show who's saved and who's not saved. Chances are, if you think you're right, what group do you think you're going to be in? Like, I'm saved. That guy's just not saved. That must be what's going on there. Okay, so Paul Paul is using sarcasm here. You got to understand, Paul, he's calling them out. The idea is they're supposed to be coming together, meeting together, but they're divided. So how are you coming together if you're divided? You're not. He's saying the divisions that's going on there were cultural norms where they were honoring the the well-to-do people, the social elites. And so the people who were being divided were the people who were being recognized, meaning we're better than y'all. We know more than you. We're higher in society. So we get a better place to be. And so they were, the divisions were really showing that we must have God's favor because we have more money. We must have God's favor because we're greater leaders. We must have God's favor and all this. So he's saying, you're coming together. He said, but of course you must be divided. Well, so God can see who's really approved and not, right? It's sarcasm because the same people he's doing this is who he's actually calling out. You just got to trust me there. So back then, here's what's happening. Back then, the extended, uh, the extended family lived together. It wasn't just like the immediate family. The houses were very differently uh, set up than ours. And so what would happen is you'd have uh, uh, the family living together. You'd probably have mom and dads living together. Maybe have cousins living together. You'd have the children there, of course. You'd have slaves living there, people who were helping around the house. Like everybody would be together. And what they had was like a formal dining room where the the top people of the house or the well-to-do people, especially if guests came over, you had this area that was just designed for them. Kind of like grandma's formal living room. Y'all ever seen one of those that you were never allowed to be in? Yeah, same idea. Paul's going to blast it. Don't tell your grandma, okay? That's what they have in this. And then over here on the other side, everybody else could eat, kind of like they had to eat out back and have a picnic. And so when they were coming together as a church, they would keep those social distinctions. They would do what they've always done. They would live how they just lived out in the world, like for a normal dinner party. The top people, whoever those were, could go and eat in this respected area with the great food, and then everybody else who came to church, you had to go out back and have a barbecue. 
Some of us say, well, I'd rather go out back and have a barbecue anyways. But it's communicating something. It's saying some are approved, some are not approved. Some are better than other people. They were keeping the distinctions that the cultural kept of the haves and the have-nots. Now, let's be sympathetic for a minute because we cannot do this. To their credit, the rich elite, the people's home they were gathering in, it most likely wasn't a poor person, right? The house wouldn't be large enough. So it was people of means. To their credit, they are welcoming all these people into their home. So to their credit, they are showing some sort of hospitality. They're opening it up. They're feeding people. So, I mean, they're kind of trying to do this thing. But the attitude was, well, yeah, you can come over. You just got to keep doing the same things we've always done. There's a way we do things around here you need to adjust to. They wanted to maintain their social status and customs when they came into the church. He says, when you meet together, verse 20. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. So the social structure allowed the elite and the the, the, the well-to-do people in that formal dining room to get served first. And whether the poor people were coming in late, however this worked, chances are, like, here's how they would serve. If you had servants and they were serving your house, who do you think they're going to serve first, the well-to-do people or the people in the backyard? The well-to-do people, because it's my money, right? So they would serve first, they would eat first, and the people in the backyard got the leftovers. They got what was left. And so if I know I got to share in this meal... I'm going to go ahead and eat all I can eat to make sure I get my fill. They weren't thinking about the other people. They were, but this was normal. Like, we got to give them a little bit of credit. This was just how things worked. And so what this is doing, it's causing the other people, the poor people, maybe middle class people, right? It's causing them to look in this room with these other people and just constantly be reminded of what they don't have. They're constantly reminded when they go to church that some people are superior and we're not. Think about this. When they came to church, they were reminded of what they don't have rather than what they have in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Think about people coming into the church and seeing the same thing played out in a church that's played out in their culture. Think about someone here saying, well, why do I need Jesus? What does Jesus do for me? If Jesus is just like my work, if Jesus followers act just like my work, just like my social club, just like the places out in the, the ball field, if, 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 if it's no different, what do I need Jesus for? Remember, everything we do as a community is a reflection of our Savior. And so in the indictment from Paul is that you're not really interested in honoring Jesus Christ in your worship. You're just worried about yourselves and your belly and, and what you get out of it. They'd rather keep their customs than be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'd rather keep things how they are rather than let the gospel change who they are and what they do. Verse 22, he says, what? I like that. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? 
Or do you really want to check these words out? They should hit hard. Do you want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Their gatherings have caused shame on people. Rather than the church being a place that welcomes people, tells them, come on, come learn about Jesus, hear and be transformed by the gospel, the church had become another social function, playing out the same social customs, reminding people of who they are and as the status in the community and telling them you're the same when you come in here. This brings disgrace to God's church. Have you ever thought the things we do when we gather together could disgrace God's church? We should think about what we do, shouldn't we? Or bring shame on other people. If I was like, it's not okay. It's not what the church is. In other words, remember we said all they're doing, I believe this is innocent. I'm trying to be sympathetic to them. I don't think they're doing it on purpose. All they're doing, folks, is the same thing they've always done. They're not trying to be mean, but their society and their culture was set up that some are better than other people. That's how it's worked. So when they came into the church, they did the same thing. This is how it works. And what Paul is saying is, listen, this is very important. The church is not just a social club. It doesn't operate like any other organization in the world. The church transcends culture and it transcends society. It's a place that should operate differently than any other place in the world. The church should be the place society looks at and goes, wow, how are they doing that? They figured out how to bring people together from all races and all backgrounds, all social standings, and they're unified working together. Like the church has figured out how to work through these things. So society should be coming to us going, wow, how have you done this? How have you brought together all these races and all these people and all the educational differences and all the different standings in society? Like these guys don't have, these guys have, they're coming together. They're work- like, how do you do this? Rather than us as the church asking the culture how to do that stuff. The culture should be coming to us. And our answer is very simple. We'd say, the gospel. Jesus Christ did this. To which Paul points them to next. Verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. In other words, saying here's the tradition you need to keep. You want to get traditional? Let's get traditional. This is it. This is what it looks like. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Saying the body of Jesus, right? You brought shame and disgrace on God's church. But remember why we gather. Jesus' body was broken for every single sinner in this world. Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, everybody. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. His body being broken is how we enter the community. It's not something that happens because of your status or your last name. It happens because of Jesus Christ. He gave up his life for us. He continues. He says, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant, the new agreement between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So his body was broken, but his blood was shed to put in place the the new covenant, which is the new agreement of how we can relate to God, of how we can come into unity with God. It's by the death of Jesus Christ. That's how we get salvation. That's how we're born again. It's not because of what you've done. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. He's done all the work, so the entrance is the same for all of us. He purchased our salvation by dying on a criminal's cross. He did that for you and me. So our standing, check this out, before God has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with him. And when we gather together, the one we honor and the one we praise and the one we worship is him. Verse 26 For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And so when we gather together and we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We're proclaiming his self-giving, his emptying out for you and me. Like that's what we're proclaiming when we gather because the gospel is about life transformation. And when we take communion, we're saved because of him. We're sinners, right? You know this. This shouldn't be new. We are sinners deserving of hell. But Jesus stepped in to pay that price for us and offer his grace and his acceptance and his mercy, not because we're awesome, but because he loves us. If we put our faith and trust in him, we can experience that. And so when we take communion, we are remembering that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We are his slaves. He is our master. Verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy, an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So while I believe we need to continue to examine ourselves when we take the Lord's Supper, think about our sins, think about what we've done, how we need to get right with God, We have to remember that what Paul's doing here and what he's telling them examine is those who think they have somehow God's special approval and the other people don't. The ones who are continuing social norms and not letting the gospel transform how they relate to other people, he's calling them out, telling them to examine themselves before they come to the table that they're sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Their unworthiness, and this is so difficult. I mean, I I know this is a lot to take in. But their unworthiness is simply going along with culture and not allowing the gospel to transform their entire life. You see, the gospel calls us to challenge social norms, not conform to them. The gospel has challenged culture norms throughout history. It breaks them. The life-changing message of Jesus Christ has changed so much, but it can keep going. 
You see, no matter your last name, no matter your social standing, your, um, your status, your rank, your education level, your job title, no matter what it is, the death and, G- the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is how we are accepted. It's because of him. And why this is so radically hard to like eat and like take on and like really live out is because it calls those who have, those who are like, who who have wealth, who have power, who have prestige. It it calls all those people who trading on social currency, their last name, their title, their wealth, whatever. It calls them to deny themselves. It calls them to stop trading on all of that and use that for the benefit of other people. So it's not how I glorify myself and make a name for myself or make more money or build or whatever. It's how can I do this and raise up other people? How can I help the poor? How can I help those who don't have the justice they deserve and so on? It calls them, not the others, it calls them to be the welcoming, inviting ones and change up their practices and challenge cultural norms for the purposes of Jesus Christ. We've seen that happen throughout history, folks, and you've heard about it. But it could continue happening today. And this is where it gets scary. Because all they were doing what they've always been done. They were doing the same things their grandma taught them. They were doing the same things their mama taught them. This is just how life worked. And Paul says you are dishonoring the church and shaming the poor. Evidently, this is the way we've always done it isn't a gospel answer. It's not good enough. The gospel should challenge all of it. The gospel should make us uncomfortable and create urgency in our lives to consider, are we hurting? Are we offending? Are we not welcoming all people into what we're doing? Verse, next verse, he says, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? Eating judgment upon yourself. He says, that is why so many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. So that idea of Christ's body is a play on words. When we come to the table, we're honoring the body of Christ that was broken, but we're also honoring Christ's bride, the body of the church. Our faith has a vertical element in it, right? Between us and God, our standing is because of him. But our faith also has the horizontal element about how we relate to other people, how we treat other people. And he says, so you are bringing judgment on yourselves. And it says what it says. I'm not explaining this way. I just, he's pretty clear. This judgment, some of you are weak, sick, and some have even died. He says, but. Next verse. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. This is a sermon for a different day. We say discipline causes us to repentance, so we're not not treated like an unbeliever. But we need to examine ourselves and think through how are we treating other people? 
Are we being welcoming? Are we being inviting? Are we concerned with other human beings? Verse 33. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so that you don't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. And he said, I'll give you more instructions about the other matters after I arrive. I have no idea what that is. Nobody does, but it makes everybody go, I wonder. Could you really handle anything else he has to say at this point? We kind of need to pause there. You see, wait for each other can also be translated as welcome each other. The idea is that at worship gatherings, when we function together as a church, when we come together, it's a place where everyone has equal status and standing because of what Jesus Christ has done. Nobody's more important than anybody else. And we all come to the table, especially the Lord's table, on equal terms. It's because of what he's done, not what we've done. And he says, if you're starving, I love this. He's like, hey, and if you're just saying, I'm really hungry, that's what it can. He said, what do you need to do? Eat at home. You got a home for it. Like, and this is something that we need to think, think through. Remember what he said in verse 22? Let's pull it up on the screen. He says, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? That's the second time he brought up your own home. And here's what he's saying. The place for you to satisfy your personal needs and your personal preferences is where? Man, I'm glad we got that. We can leave. That's what we need to know. How often do churches fight over this, folks? All the time. You know where you satisfy your own needs? At home. You know where you need to think about being welcoming and inviting and how does this uh, fill the needs of everybody or potential people? The church. They're not the same thing. And so... When we gather, we gather together to celebrate what Jesus has done. And for what I see here and what Paul's saying is those of you who've been in the faith, those of you who have been, been around, he puts the expectations on you to think about the other people and the environments that we're creating for them. You see, there's a simple application for this. And you're like, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. I know. You probably haven't heard 1 Corinthians 11 preached a lot. Pastors intentionally skip it. I don't blame them. I'll be honest. But the point of this is that our environments, our worship environments, our Sunday school environments, all of our environments must be welcoming. It's a very simple application. They must be inviting and welcoming for everybody. And as a church, we have to continually think through our environments. Because at the end of the day, and I've thought about this a lot, you're just going to have to trust me, what we do as a church is we create environments for people to come hear the gospel and to learn about Jesus Christ and grow in their faith. And the challenge for us in our time and our history is do we create environments where church people are comfortable or unchurched people are comfortable? Are we more worried about who we're going to lose or who we're going to reach? And I know that's challenging, but what do you do when they're at odds? Who comes first? Do you remember Paul's answer to that before? He said, what do you have and where can you do all your personal preferences? Where's the place for that? Your home. Because he told us before, we're going to bring it back together. First Corinthians 9. Remember what he said here? He says, to the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. 
I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. You see, sharing the gospel, reaching people with the gospel must come over our personal preferences. And I know it's difficult. We're like, man, that is challenging. That's hard. I don't like it. But listen, this isn't any more difficult than it would be for someone back then to treat a slave the same as a politician. Like that would have been radically challenging for them to work through. And for us, it's the same thing. But we have to remember, while this may seem offensive, we take the cues from our Lord and Savior who is willing to be humiliated for us, to willing to go that extra mile of being beaten publicly, nude, hung on a cross so we could live. Like the idea of us going first for the benefit of other people is what we see Jesus model. And surely our environments cannot be held hostage for the sake of our daughter's weddings. That's convicting, isn't it? I have a daughter too, so our daughter's weddings. Surely it has to be greater than that. Surely the gospel purposes are more important than that. But here's what I know, coming to this kind of place in your life, where you're giving up your rights and your personal preferences for someone else isn't a natural thing, and you can't do this on your own. There's not five easy, easy steps for this. It takes the gospel to radically transform your life. Jesus has to do a good work in your life to soften your heart for any of this to make sense, to get on board with his purpose and his missions, that we leverage everything we are and who we are for him and for other people to know Jesus. Like that's not a natural thing. That's a gospel thing. And so you got to let Jesus do that good work in your life to realize that, hey, everything I have, all that I have is not about me. It's about him. And how can I use it to reach people? You see, I know for a fact there is no logic in this world that's going to compete with nostalgia. None. But the gospel does. And the gospel can. It is more important. And so this morning, I ask, when you come to the table and we gather to take the Lord's Supper this morning, I ask you to think through, how has the gospel impacted your horizontal relationships? I got the vertical, the elements of us celebrating and remembering God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, acceptance, understanding, and compassion. I mean, think through those, meditate on them. They are extremely important. But I ask you, as you examine your life, have you then allowed those things to change your horizontal relationship? Are you compassionate? Do you care about other people's sense of justice? Do you care about people from all walks of life? Are you allowing the gospel to challenge your cultural and political views and allow the gospel to come out front and what Jesus Christ would ask of his followers rather than an agenda or something else? Has your heart heart softened for people who look different, who come from different places, who may not be at the same place as you? Like, does your heart break for them and do you have compassion on them? Or do you just say, well, they need to just figure it out like I did? Or that's not a gospel answer. So have you, and I ask you, how has the gospel impacted those horizontal relationships in your life? And what God's asking you to do about that is between you and him. But will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to the table this morning, we remember the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We recognize that it's only because of your great love and your abundance of grace can we call you our Heavenly Father.
Father, you have saved us and redeemed us, and we thank you for that. We ask you now to show us if we aren't applying the gospel into our relationships with others. Show us where we need to forgive, where we need to grant mercy, where we need to show acceptance and love, and how we can treat people more like our actual brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we come to the table this morning just honored that you allow us to come. We proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world who has transformed our lives and is going to continue to bring reconciliation and offer new life to anyone who accepts this gospel message. Father, we love you and thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.